0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. Later this hour we will ask an important question. Can we be civil? I'll talk with Kathleen Caveney of Boston College about the call-out culture in America. But first, Monica Leo is a professional puppeteer and has been for 50 years. She founded the Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater of West Liberty in 1974. And ever since, she's been creating puppets, telling stories, and creating connection and community all over the country and even internationally. She's written about her life in her new memoir, Hand, Shadow, Rod, the Story of Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Tuesday, October 24th, and and at the Hearst Center for the Arts in Cedar Falls on November 30th. And she's with me now. Monica, welcome. Thank you, Charity. It is wonderful to have you here. And you were not actually planning
2: on writing your memoir. (laughs) How does that happen accidentally, that you just accidentally write a memoir? The pandemic came, and we all had a little more time on our hands than we usually do, although we kept pretty busy. But my pal, Mary Swander decided to teach a memoir class on Zoom, a memoir writing class. And I thought, oh, okay, why not? That might be fun. (laughs) And here we are. And then I started writing, and pretty soon I found myself in the position. You know, you hear about people that um, clean house to procrastinate from writing. It was the opposite for me. (laughs) I procrastinated from cleaning house by sitting down and writing.
1: (laughs) So... Going back into your life and plumbing the depths of some tough emotions, you've had some really difficult experiences. You've had some amazing experiences telling these stories. What what was it about that that made you want to do that instead of clean house?
2: (laughs) It was just more fun. It was more entertaining. And you weren't intending to publish this book. No, I really wasn't. I didn't even consider that as a possibility, partly because I have enough friends and relatives that have gone through the publishing um, circus, and I know how painful it can be and how, you know, tedious. But Mary at one point said, well, I think you're ready to submit this manuscript. And I thought, okay. So I submitted it to the University of Iowa Press, and they... uh, didn't accept it, but they suggested that I submit it to the Ice Cube Press, and I'm so glad they did because it's been just a dream to work. Steve accepted it, and it's been a dream to work with him all it's the way Steve through. Steve Semkin of Ice Cube Press. Well, it's a wonderful book, and it's so
1: I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I want to ask you to start our conversation where you start the book, which is, in your prologue, you introduce us to your parents. And this little glimpse that we get of them at the very beginning of the book gives us so much insight into you and how you became you. So let's start with your parents. I mean, they came to the United States as refugees after World War II. Yeah, my
2: father was a Holocaust survivor. He was not for too long, just for a few months, was in Buchenwald concentration camp. And when they released him, mostly because I think he had colleagues and friends that had loud enough voices that it was easier for him to re- for them to release him than to keep him. I mean, that's kind of what we the conclusion we've come to. He was never really quite sure, uh, but they gave him basically a month to settle his affairs and leave the country. He already he was a widower and he had a, already had a small child, so he put her on the on one of the the transport trains and sent her off to Holland, and then he settled his affairs and went to Holland himself and met her there. And my mother, they weren't married yet, my mother followed, found out that she couldn't get a visa to the United States because as a non-Jew, as a man, member of the pure Aryan master race, mm-hmm. you know, she, could, she could have traveled back and forth. She didn't need to leave. So she ended up going to Venezuela with my father's brother and his wife and spending a year there before my father came to Venezuela and they got married and then she could come to the States. Wow. That is quite a dramatic story. That is an amazing story. And so when you were growing up, did you know this whole history? You know, it's really funny because my father was a real positive, upbeat upbeat kind of person. And um, he told stories and... I, I mean, the, the name Buchenwald was familiar to me, but he told stories about the people that he met there and the conversations he had with them, and I always thought it was some kind of summer camp he went to. Wow. And then after, he, I was in eighth grade or seventh grade, I guess, when he died, and after he died, I, I was taking a history class a year or so later, and Buchenwald was in my history book. And I remember going to my mother, you know, my mother didn't realize I didn't know, you know. And I said, this isn't the Buchenwald Fatih was in, is it? And she said, yes. And that was the first I really understood what he'd gone through. Wow. That must have
1: hit like a load of bricks. Yeah, it really did. (laughs) One of the things that you share about your father is his imaginary friend. Tell me about your father's imaginary friend. My
2: father's name was Paul, and the diminutive of Paul in German is Paulchen, and if you speak baby talk, it might be Paulfen. And he had a little imaginary friend who was five years old who lived in his, his jacket pocket named Paulfen, and you could always tell when Paulfen was talking because my father would get this goofy expression on his face and his voice would change, you know and uh I'm convinced I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm convinced that he invented Paulfin to begin with uh when my when he was left a widower with a baby daughter yeah. and you know she used to my sister used to say that Paulfinn was like a brother to her and really helped her get through difficult parts of her childhood and uh, but you know, Paulfin came to the states with my father. <laughs> Yeah, but my mother was always a little spooked by she him. She wasn't because, a yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. She she thought, you know, she thought, oh, what are people going to think if they find out my husband's got an imaginary friend? So my father at one point said, okay, I'll send him off to Quaker boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> but he would come home to visit. Well, he came home on weekends, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think your uh, your mother regretted sending him away? Well, I think she, yeah. I think that she realized that, you know, she'd lost that battle. Yeah. And I think she also realized that she was being kind of foolish. But, you know, here she was in a strange land. They were already weird. They had German accents and they were immigrants. And, you know, people were still fighting the second. I mean, it was still Second World War. But even after the war was over for a long time, people were still fighting the Second World War in their heads. Right, And... uh, People with German accents got a lot of discrimination just for the German accent.
1: And where, where were you living in Iowa at that time?
2: Uh, Dubuque. I grew up in Dubuque. We first lived in Texas because my, my father, when he came to this country, he was a, a, a theologian, and he was a Lutheran theologian. And, uh, but the Lutheran church was not ready to accept him because they were trying to hide from there. They didn't want people with heavy German accents sure. representing them. So they eventually, he, he worked for Presbyterian Seminary first, and then they sent him off to Texas to be a country pastor in two congregations of German immigrants who had settled in Texas in the 1880s but still spoke sort of German, you know, sort of pigeon German, and they wanted somebody who could preach in English or German. And so that's where he got sent. And then finally in 1950, I guess the war was far enough behind that they felt okay about having somebody with a German accent represent them. And that's when they uh, called him to Dubuque to teach Greek and New Testament at Wartburg Seminary. So, and so I was five at the time. Okay. You know,
1: so. Having introduced us to your father's imaginary friend, that feels like a precursor to perhaps your... Job as a performer, I think so I think had, I think there's a direct connection. You also, uh, your mother was a really incredible artist. Tell she me was. about your mom. She
2: was a metal cra- uh, metal uh, craftsman. She was the first woman ever to be accepted into the Metal Workers Guild in Germany as a master craftsman, and she made church art. She made uh, a lot of reliefs. Actually, some of her reliefs are in different places in Eastern Iowa. Now there's two doors at Wartburg Seminary in Dubuque, and there's a a big one, I think, in Waverly somewhere. I can't remember exactly where, but she has pieces all over the place, in in churches and also in private homes. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I travel in Germany, sometimes I I see something that I just know was her work, you know, even... But so much of it was bombed out, so a yeah. lot of it disappeared. I'm sure. I'm sure. So <laughs> you uh, you are your
1: parents' child in so many ways. And when you went off to college, you didn't study art. I mean, you already were an artist. You were
2: artistic all throughout your childhood. But when you went off to, to go well, to Wartburg... You know, I, I went off to Wartburg because my brother was there, basically, you know. <laughs> Back then, we didn't think as much about where to go to school as kids do now. You know, we didn't do the whole campus visits thing. We just picked one. (laughs) (laughs) And you studied history. And I got there, and they didn't have an art major, and I was always really interested in history, so I decided to major in history. And then one day, the the nice thing about a small college is that you can have the head of the department as your advisor when you're a freshman. (laughs) And I did. And it was, I think, during my sophomore year that Dr. Ottersberg called me into his office and said, every time I see you, you're either going into that art building or coming out of it. And I saw that you illustrated the campus literary magazine. So why are you majoring in history? And I said, well, Wartburg doesn't offer an art major. And he said, well, in that case, I guess you're going to have to transfer, aren't you? (laughs) Did, when you had that, I mean, you did transfer. And we'll talk more about that
1: in a few minutes. But at that moment i mean a lot you're 19 18 years old and you have to decide your future that's a big moment for is, a lot yeah. of young people but what what became clear in your mind in that moment did was that an epiphany i think it
2: became clear to me yeah that i was you know this was not working it's not that i didn't find history i still find history interesting some of my favorite puppet shows are history shows right you you've know? been teaching us but, a lot of history <laughs> But yeah, I I realized that was not what I really wanted to do. But you didn't just transfer. You went to Germany. Well, that's because my mother wouldn't let me go to California. It was too far away. <laughs> but Germany felt closer <laughs> to your mom. Well, she had spies. <laughs> <laughs> spies, you mean family. Yeah. Family right. in, in
1: Germany who could report back on on what you were doing. All right, Monica, we're going to take a short break. Okay. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking with Monica Leo. She is a puppeteer, and she has been for 50 years. She has just published her memoir, it's called Hand, Shadow, Rod, the Story of Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater. And Eulenspiegel is based in West Liberty. There, are, She has a co-author in this book, by the way. Her head puppet, Alfred Schultz, also weighs in as well. And Monica will be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Tuesday, October 24th. She'll also be at the Hearst Center for the Arts in Cedar Falls on November 30th. We'll continue our conversation, and then later in the hour, we'll ask the important question, can we be civil? Call out culture in America. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Monica Leo. She is a professional puppeteer, and she has just written her memoir. It's called Hand, Shadow, Rod, the Story of Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater. Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater is based in West Liberty, and she has been traveling the country. She's been traveling the world, performing, creating puppets, creating stories, and creating community for 50 years now. And, Monica, I would love for you to read us just a little bit. This is from the first chapter of the book. It's called School Days. And it gives us a sense of your life, but it also introduces us to the voice of your chief puppet, Alfred Schultz, as well. So would you read that for us?
2: The old red pickup truck rolled through Mason City and Clear Lake, past Garner and Britt. I drove as Terry Jean studied the map, flicking cigarette ashes out of the window, blonde hair flying in the breeze, It was 1978, long before cell phones or GPS. In the truck bed, under the metal topper, rode Schultz and his gang of near-life-size hand-and-rod puppets with papier-mâché heads and protruding, soulful, movable eyes. Schultz was the head puppet. He called the shots. He wore a purple shirt, tan pants, and brown boots and sported a red beard with a bald pate. He'd started life as a king, but he soon shed his crown and became a sort of every puppet doling out sage advice to the other puppets and even to us as human manipulators. He and his pals shared the space with the stage, four plywood panels each designed to look like a house with a pitched roof silhouette and a window cut out. Turn left! The truck screeched around the corner and headed into Corwith, the site of our first ever school residency. A couple of weeks earlier, Terry Jean and I had been sitting at the round table in the kitchen nursing our coffee, when we got a call from the Iowa Arts Council. Would we like to try doing some five-day school residencies through the newly minted Artists in the Schools program? Of course we would! And here we were, driving past the bank, the cafe, the hardware store, and pulling into the elementary school parking lot. Our tiny second-grade teacher sponsor was there to meet us and help us unload our pickup truck. All five feet of her picked up a six-foot wooden panel and started across the parking lot. She was accosted by a strong wind and looked as if she was about to take to the sky like Mary Poppins. We all conquered the wind and set up in the gym under the basketball hoop. The kids filed in grade by grade, the kindergartners following their teacher like baby ducks sitting crisscross applesauce on the floor in the front row. The sixth graders sat in the back, Schultz's big moment was about to start. <clears throat> Schultz here? Whoa, look at all those kids. Boy, I hope they like me, but why wouldn't they?
0: Don't worry,
2: Schultz just act out the story, monkeys and owls. I get to play a baker, and I have to bake a 30-layer cake with a miniature castle and a waterfall on top made of, out of frosting, but I feel awful because I just ate six, count them, six chickens, and I need a nap. Well, the story goes on, and I get Till Eulenspiegel to do the work for me. Only instead of baking the cake, he bakes monkeys and owls. Don't ask me how he got that mixed up, but it was hilarious. And the kids thought so too. Phew!
1: That is Monica Leo and her head puppet, Alfred Schultz, reading from the memoir Hand, Shadow Rod, the story Story of Eulenspiegel Beagle Puppet Theater. So Monica, I mean, just the, before the break, we were talking about how you went from being a history major to studying art. You traveled to Germany to study art because your mom felt that that was closer than California. And so you got to reconnect with, with family or really connect mm-hmm. with family because you had a lot of relatives in right. Germany. And you studied to become an artist. You really developed, I guess, people would
2: refer to what you were doing as, as folk art. Well, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I know that my—I studied with Josef Boyce, who, had, who had turned out to be a famous um, avant-garde artist, but I had not a clue who he was. <laughs> but uh, he, he could deliver very effective, very insightful, and sometimes very cruel critiques, and uh, after I had, I was there for four semesters, and I stayed with him, even though he could be a real jerk sometimes, because he was also really insightful, and because I, I, I liked working with the other students in the class. Uh, but in my last semester, I made a, a, wood head, a wooden head, a portrait of one of my cousins, actually, in wood that I carved. And when I got it all done, I brought it in, and he said, you know, you should paint that. And I said, paint it? cover that beautiful wood grain and he said you really should be doing folk art and then I never you know I, I didn't I kind of shrugged it off at the time but a few years later when I started doing puppets and it just really felt like the right thing I thought huh he could see something in my work that I was not ready to see interesting
1: so as things develop and you come back to Iowa, I mean you're you become basically a, a toy maker in uh-huh. many ways. Yeah. Selling your toys, dolls and puppets, yep. When did performance Well, I started making
2: these near life-size hand and rod puppets like Schultz, you know, mostly because I'd seen a hand and rod puppet somewhere and I thought it was such a great idea. Actually, a lot of the Muppets are hand and rod puppets, but I decided to focus on the eyes rather than the mouth because when I'm looking at somebody, I'm looking at their eyes, not their mouth. So Mm -hmm. it seemed logical to me. And I had these puppets, but, you know, nobody wants to buy a four or five-foot tall puppet. (laughs) It's like adding a member to your family, you've got to find a place to put them. So they they weren't selling very well, let's put it that way. And Deanne Wartman lived just up the street from me, and our kids were friends. And uh, she came over one day, and I was talking about those puppets and how much fun they were to make, but how I sure wasn't able to sell them. She said, well, let's do some puppet shows with them. And I said, I'm not a performer. And she said, I am, I'll show you how. <laughs> And that's basically how it started because she was already doing a lot of mime and storytelling and stuff. Wow. <laughs> and then you connected with Terry Jean. And Terry Jean, my husband brought Terry Jean home for dinner one day. He, he had been telling me about her. He worked on a, he was a, a carpenter and he was on a construction crew that she was kind of doing, you know, cleanup work for. Her boyfriend was on the crew too and she was coming in and sweeping up and stuff like that. And he, he really liked her. He really connected to her. And he thought she and I would get along well. So he brought her home for dinner one evening. And she just kind of never left again.
1: <laughs> and the two of you, I mean, you really became... a uh A dynamic duo traveling the country together. You have such wonderful stories about traveling the country in in vehicles that you really had no business traveling the country (laughs) in. But um, really, you know, performing, but also doing these workshops with students all over the place. Tell me a little bit about that obviously something that it became so important to you. And maybe it just happened but you know in over time it became something that you believed in so deeply what what is so special about doing a workshop or a residency mm-hmm. with students over the course
2: of, of a week or more it it just has an amazing ripple effect you know i'm i'm so sad that those programs are not around for young artists these days to be able to to go and do that this was something that was Created by the Iowa Arts Council, the National Endowment for the Arts started it, but their idea of an artist residency was that you would be somewhere for a semester and you'd be in school half day and then half day you'd be working on your own. But the Iowa Arts Council realized that was not going to work in a rural state like this. So they came up with the idea of five-day residencies and where basically you didn't have a lot of time to work on your own stuff. You know, you were basically there for five days usually in a school. Sometimes they were community residencies, but nine times out of ten they were school residencies. This was before No Child Left Behind, so the teachers had a lot more latitude when it came to making time for something like kids to f- make puppets and put on puppet shows. And it, I think it just had a huge ripple effect. I mean, between that and the touring arts team, which was sort of the summer version of that program in a way, uh... There are arts councils all over the state of Iowa that were started because they needed to. They needed a venue to sponsor an artist residency. And those arts councils, a lot of them are still in existence and they're still affecting their communities. They're still creating color and, and interest in their communities. And I found that so, you know, doing all of that traveling in, in all 99 counties basically really made me understand how important those kind of community connections are and how vibrant a town that has them is and how dead a town that doesn't have them is.
1: I'm talking with Monica Leo. She has just published her memoir, Hand, Shadow, Rod, the Story of Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater. And speaking of community, Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater is based in West Liberty and you have done so much to bring that artistic community in West Liberty to life and obviously you're not alone in mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But it's been such an important part of your work. Tell me a little bit about that and your investment
2: in West Liberty. Well I feel really lucky that we ended up in West Liberty. Again it was my husband's impetus. He loved Mexico and he discovered this little Mexican bar in West Liberty and he made friends with the owners and and they taught him Spanish. He actually had pretty good Spanish skills, mostly taught to him by Sergio Navaglio at Dos Amigos Bar in West Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> and about that same time, we started thinking we really needed a permanent space that was not one of our homes. For one thing, the stuff piles up and you— We were rehearsing yeah, five in a church— five-foot tall yeah, <laughs> <laughs> We were rehearsing in a church basement in Iowa City, and it was really nice of them to let us do that, but it meant that we had to pack everything up every time. And we knew, we first we looked around Iowa City, and it was really obvious that there was no way we could afford Iowa City. So I said, well, let's look at the little towns around. And then John happened to be in Dos Amigos one day, and the, the owners told him that the building next door was for sale. And they, you know, they opened it up and let him look at it, and he showed it to Terry Jean and me, and he said, you know, it's not much, but I can fix it. And it really wasn't much. I mean, it's one of the oldest buildings in town, and the back end of it was basically rotting off, you know, and the only way into the basement was through a trap door. But he is a carpenter, or he was a carpenter, and so he knew what to do, and he had friends in the construction business, so he rebuilt the whole back and uh, put in stairs to the basement and you know, put in new restrooms and that kind of stuff. And it's been a really functional space for us. You know, and Terry Jean was dubious. She said, well, what if nobody comes? And I said, well, even if nobody comes, we've got a great place to rehearse and store our stuff and run our office. And not only that, granting organizations take you more seriously if you have an address that's not your home address. Right. And it really, I mean, it's turned out to be a really wonderful place for us the community. I did not realize until during the pandemic how much the community values us because during that time, people would, you know, and more than once or twice, somebody walked in and handed us a check and said, we want you to survive. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's when I thought I got to figure out how to keep this place going after I die, you know. Well, and you also are
1: the founder of the West Liberty Children's Festival, which yeah, has just become right. such Me and a Mallory treasure. Smith. <laughs> So West Liberty has invested in you, but you've invested in West Liberty, too, and really built so much community there. And you share a lot of stories about the people that have been very important to you. Terry Jean, of course, uh, you share a lot about her and uh, Terry Jean has passed away. And that was such a terrible loss for you. You save writing about your husband until almost the end of the book. And I have to say that there should be a movie made out of your at least your early relationship, because you've got a meet cute, you've got all this, the the trappings of a romance novel, Monica. (laughs) (laughs) You overheard his conversation at a restaurant and started talking and, and really things went from there. In, uh, in sharing these stories and reflecting on the people that have been so important to you, what has that process been like for you?
2: Well, mostly it's been joyous. You know, um, my partner puppeteer that I had from Mexico, Ellie, for 12 years, when she died, her daughter, and, and her daughter called me, and it was unexpected. And I responded with grief, and Myra said, stop Mommy told me she wants you to to tell you that she wants you to remember her with joy and not with sadness. And of course that's impossible altogether right. but you really try to remember with joy. Well you did a beautiful job
1: sharing the legacy of each one of these individuals and remembering them with joy. You have been doing this for a very long time, and you also reflect a little bit on the future. Uh-huh. You do see a future for oil and Spiegel. I do,
2: because I was really lucky that one day, you know, I have discovered that generally the best people, with a few exceptions, walk in the door someday, and there they are. And Stephanie Velez was one of them. She walked in the door. She was a friend of Kara's, who was our outreach director at the time, and she came in to sell some of her miniatures and dolls at the holiday open house and we hit it off and um, she started Kara had had a new business that she and her husband were running and she really didn't have time to do her job anymore. so Stephanie started helping her with that and then pretty soon you know John and I were going to Mexico for Christmas and i said I'm really sorry, but I'm gonna have to, cancel the Christmas break show, which we usually do and usually gets a good audience. And she said, don't you have a show you could teach me? And she did apparently a fabulous job. I wasn't there to see it, of course, but I heard reports. And pretty soon she was a puppeteer, you know. She, and so when I, you know, after John died and I knew I had to change my will and I had to work on all that, I just asked her one day, I said, do you want to keep doing this after, after I croak? And she said, well, I hope you're not planning on doing that anytime soon. And I said, no, but do you want to? And she thought about it. She said, yeah, I think I do. And so I basically, you know, in my will, I've turned it over to her. So, wow, I think there will be a future. You know, she's 35 years younger than I am, let's face it,
1: (laughs) But that's so that's so beautiful to know that your legacy and the legacy of Terry Jean and the legacy of your husband, John, I mean, that that all mm-hmm. that all has a future.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I, I learned by bad example from other people who have not been able to do that, who've not been able to either face doing it or figure out how to do it. And, you know, there's a really struggle after they die to keep keep things going. We only
1: have a, about a minute
2: left. What's uh, what's next for you? <laughs> More of the same, I guess. Stephanie and I each have a new show that we're working on. Stephanie's is going to be about germs, and it's very silly, but I think it'll also be real informative for kids. And she's going to have our outreach director, Chris Eck, who happens to be a fine musician, play the music for the show. Nice. And I'm working on one that's based on I on his the history of my old neighborhood in Iowa City that I found out had been a Mexican barrio for years, and it involves a a dog, a Chihuahua named Nacho, and a a circus monkey named Yo-Yo, and two kids named Lupita and Juanito. And so I'm working on that and hoping. Wonderful. We We can't wait. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Monica, thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you, Charity. It's always a pleasure.
1: It's wonderful to have you here. Monica Leo, she's just published her memoir. It's called Hand, Shadow, Rod, the story of Eulenspiegel Puppet Theater, which, of course, is based in West Liberty. She'll be reading at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City on Tuesday, October 24th and at the Hearst Center for the Arts in Cedar Falls on November 30th. Coming up in just a moment, we will talk about Call out culture and deep divisions in the United States. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The divisions in our society feel very deep right now. Some people say that we haven't been this divided since the Vietnam War. Others go back further to the Civil War. But no matter how you look at it, it's clear that we are deeply divided on many issues. And the way we communicate our beliefs through social media and broader media, emphasizes these divisions. Kathleen Cavaney has spent a lot of time studying these divisions and how we interact or don't interact with people whose beliefs differ from ours. She is the Daryl and Juliet Libby Professor of Law and Theology at Boston College. She'll be in Ames at Iowa State University giving a lecture called Can We Be Civil? Call Out Culture in America on Thursday, October 19th at 530 in the sunroom of the Memorial Union. The lecture is free and open to the public, and she is with me now. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you, Charity. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And when you say call out culture, tell me what that means.
3: Well, I think it's 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 it's, it's actually a little bit of a ambiguous term. Call out culture, I think, is a, a term that we use now to talk about people calling one another to account on the internet usually. It's usually an internet phenomenon. that can go beyond that and sometimes if you don't respond appropriately to the call out, you can be cancelled. You can be, you know, shamed and, and people can try to you know, hold you to account in a bigger way by um, by uh, punishing you um, in some sense or by, uh, you know, may- maybe making you shunned from the community or making you uh, calling for you to lose a position or a job or to be doxed as some, you know, people say. Uh, so it- it's a way of holding people um, to a certain standard and, uh inflicting or imposing consequences if they don't live up to that standard.
1: And you've been really studying this and and the I guess dysfunction that we have in talking to people and communicating with people with different beliefs. You've been focusing on this for about 20 years. Where did this start for you? <laughs>
3: Well, it's sort of an interesting question because, you know, it didn't start on the Internet. Um, It started around 2004 when I noticed, you know, the great divisions in the country around issues, mainly abortion at the time, that's still with us, uh, sometimes same-sex marriage, uh, how how to educate kids. and, And we were talking about one another as if, we were in a war we were talking about ourselves as being in a culture war and i found that language to be really disturbing because it suggested that what we needed to do was defeat one another rather than try to understand one another right because when you think about a war you've you've gone past the point of 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 engaging in negotiation, engaging in challenge, engaging in, you know, uh, mutual uh, modification of beliefs to sort of saying, well, this person needs to be defeated. Um, and, and so I started looking at the past and, you know, and I think people tend to idealize the past. Oh, we were all in this wonderful community together together. Um, until, and, and it turns out that that's not the case, you know, from the time of the Puritans, there was this type of rhetoric that was both religious in nature and political in nature called the Jeremiad, where prophets, uh, you know, social prophets condemned um, other people for violations of our national covenant for not living up to you know, for the Puritans it was their you know, their their commonwealth covenant not living up to the standards that, you know, that were set for everyone and, and actually causing harm because the Puritans believed that if they didn't, you know behave appropriately that God was going to punish them and so therefore the you know the ministers at that time called people to account for going to bars for you know not going to church on time for doing all of this behavior that wasn't just harmful at the time but would result in god uh getting very angry at them and letting their community suffer
1: so you see that same pattern playing out today
3: i see it as the roots of it so what i what i what i want to say is that you know this kind of language, this fiery condemnation of, uh, of you know wrongs, can be helpful in limited doses. I, I think of it like moral chemotherapy in a way. So I mean, so chemotherapy, you know it can be lethal if the dose isn't right, but it can also save you from a, a lethal cancer. So you have to balance things. Um, and what I tried to think about, was, you know, what are the conditions under which this kind of language was helpful and and, and not mainly harmful? Um, And I came up with some criteria. And and if you want just the short version of it, you know, look at Dr. Martin Luther King's, you know, I have a dream speech. And and there are a few key features of that that uh, I think are important. One was that he modeled the talk if you if you go back and look at you know the hebrew scriptures the christian old testament there are kind of two types of condemnation sometimes the prophet condemns the people within the community and then they're saying hey you know get yourselves in order we've got to get ourselves in order as a community i love you and unless you reform the whole community is going to suffer because god's going to Punish us, and, and and so that's kind of a constructive notion. Um, it's tough, but it's constructive. And the other was the oracles against the nations, where uh, the prophets were kind of calling for the total destruction of the enemies of his people. And that's not constructive. And where things get not constructive, I think, in prophetic rhetoric and or in today's call out culture, is when you basically say to somebody. I am no longer in a political community with you. I think you should disappear from the face of the earth um, because I don't agree with your view. So I think we have to presume we are in political community with the people we're in political community with and try to adjust our rhetoric accordingly.
1: So looking at this historically, I mean, you've talked about moments where the this kind of rhetoric has been used constructively. I find it a little bit discouraging to think how Far, the destructive uses of this go back, this isn't a new thing in our culture. We just have new ways to do it.
3: we have new ways to do it, and the ways are a little bit more um i think destructive, so you know the older ways you know there would be broadsides published, and people would read them um you know uh, you know there would be uh you know there would be that, but the internet poses. I think some challenges that, you know, make the destructive side a little bit more dangerous um, because it it can encourage, you know, anonymity and accusation. It can encourage, uh, you know, kind of a mob or, 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 or piling on mentality. So some of the things I think we need to think about is, you know, well, how have we shamed in the past? And, you know, when is shame appropriate? How did it work out when, you know, the Puritans put a scarlet A on people? We don't put scarlet A's on people, but we're putting on virtual tags if people don't agree with us. And the way you get to put the tag on is, is not because you're a morally authoritative person, but because you have power on the Internet. And I'm always nervous when when what allows you to do the work isn't kind of the inherent authority of your position, like with Dr. King, right? You know, he, he but when it's simply just, uh, you know, a kind of social power that isn't related to moral authority.
1: It feels like we have a tendency to want to view everything in the binary an either yes. or, and the world is, isn't binary. I mean we've seen we've seen constructive conversations where people instead of saying either or can say both and why do we love this binary this either or
3: so much? Because when you, I think it goes back to the, you know, the deep roots of this prophetic, in, you know, structure that's so much a part of American rhetoric. When you hold yourself up as a prophet, well, you're you're holding yourself above above other people, right? You're judging them. You're holding them to account. I call the language prophetic indictment. Well, so you're the prosecutor. I mean, there there's a way in which it's it, it's much more satisfying to put oneself in a stance above other people and to judge them than to be horizontal with them and say, look, this is a new issue, this is a controversial issue, here's why I'm so worried about it, here's why it affects, uh, you know, people that I care about so much. And and, and and then to hear the other side. The defensive cancel culture or call-out culture is usually known as accountability. And I'm fine with accountability, but accountability means you need to hear the account, right? You need to listen to the account. Um, it isn't simply not hearing it, just saying, "Well, I don't agree with you, so therefore you're, uh, you know, you're a terrible person, and you need to be, uh, you know, ridden out of town on a rail."
1: Right. Well, and I. I there are so many examples that I could bring up. So right. many examples. But there, there is one, you know, going on right now in Iowa where um, we are seeing a restriction about the books that can be included in libraries, in schools in Iowa and in Iowa curriculum. But the people on both sides of this issue care so much about right. public education and students. They do Fundamentally disagree on one big issue, but when you talk about not being able to see that we are in political community with each other, I mean, I feel like that's a perfect example.
3: It is, and that, that is, and I think public education is something about it, and you know, is is there? I mean, it's is at the heart of what it means to be in community with one another, right? Because we we have a responsibility for raising the next generation, and and I think we tend in America to go to the uh, you know to to the extreme um, way too easily. So I think the question to ask you know yourself and to one another is okay. Well, what values are you trying to protect positively? What are you trying to protect? And maybe we can find some agreement there. And then you can ask people, well, what are you afraid of? You know, and 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 then at least you can see if you see somebody's fear, what they are afraid of. You know, what what is the what what is the problem that going on in there you know in their head um, and and I think people are very vulnerable when it comes to the education of their own children um, and uh, and and yet at the same time the state sees an interest the community sees an interest in educating people who are going to be able to contribute to a pluralist representative democracy in the next you know f- what 50 years 60 years they're going to be living or more than that 80 90 maybe a hundred right
1: right so Your work helps us understand why we do what we do, why we're doing what we're doing in in our culture today.
3: Right. I'm I'm not trying to solve any particular problem. I'm just saying if you go down this conversational path in this way, what opportunities are you losing?
1: So when we understand that, what do you hope we can do with that information?
3: Well, I hope we can exercise a little bit of self-restraint and say it may feel great to be a prophet in the moment, right? You know, to prophetically indict somebody that's, you know, um, that's taking a position that's different from ours. Um, is it in the long run going to be effective? Um, one of the things that worries me is that, you know, I can get somebody to be silent about their objections by prophetically indicting them right by threatening them with you can loss shut of them down else. right. I can shut them down and I can shut them up, but that's not the same thing as convincing them. Um, it really isn't the same thing as convincing them um, and, and and it will cause resentment quite often and and then when the political winds shift, then, then they are going to be no different than they were before, and then they will feel that they can use the same tactics on you that you used on them. And if you know, so it's not like it's not like it's going to be effective in the long run. And we have to always engage in the hard work of trying to convince people, not just shut them down. So when we
1: ask this question, can we be civil, y- when you say civil, it means more than can we be nice to each other?
3: Absolutely. And I do think under certain circumstances, prophetic indictment can be civil. Um, and I, one of the criteria is, you you know, you you always treat the people that you're indicting as members of the community. Uh, another is that, you know, we we shouldn't indict people for Violations of what we hope to be part of our national covenant, right? I mean, just like the law. If, if, if I indict you for violating a law that hasn't been passed, but I hope will be passed, you're not going to be really happy about that, right? So I don't think prophetic indictment works on issues that are controversial today. So a lot of issues that we're arguing about, abortion is a great example. We're actually a very divided country on that and 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 just indicting one another for holding a position um that that you don't think we should hold that that's not going to convince people that's not going to help move past the divisions, um, and that's certainly not going to get people over to your side. Your people, And the middle people are going to walk away, and that's what worries me most. You know, So you've got the indictors on both sides. Then you get a lot of people on many of these issues who say, well, I see this point on this side, and I see that point on that side. Those are the people that are most likely to get shut down by this language of canceling and prophetic indictment, because they're not truly committed, and they're easy targets right. from both sides.
1: And they may be afraid to talk about anything.
3: Right. right. <laughs> um, and is that really good for a democracy?
1: Right. So that's a great question. So this is, you're coming to Iowa State University, and this is the first time you're bringing this specific lecture to a, a college campus. What are you hoping to get out of that experience, to to go and speak to students and staff and faculty?
3: Well, I always love to visit college campuses because, you know, you can hear a different perspective. And, and I'm a, a, a Phi Beta Kappa lecturer, so I get to go around the country and talk. And, and Iowa was my first uh, talk as, as part of this series and i'm hoping to learn how things look from different areas and different positions in the country i mean we talk about red states and blue states i'm, I'm i live in massachusetts which is you know a, a blue state although it's a mistake to think that there aren't uh, you know people who are committed to you know red state values here i mean every state Every is place is a
1: little bit purple
3: <laughs> a little bit purple and and so but, but how does how do things look with with the situation In the heartland, in the middle of the country, what are the things people are most worried about? I think learning about how people are different and also the same in in a vast country is so important.
1: Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for talking with me, and um, I'm excited about the conversations you'll be having around the
3: country. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Charity. I'll see you all in Iowa on Wednesday.
1: Kathleen Cavaney is the Darrell and Juliet Libby Professor of Law and Theology at Boston College. She will be in Ames at Iowa State University giving a lecture, Can We Be Civil? Call Out Culture in America on Thursday, October 19th at 5.30 p.m. in the sunroom of the Memorial Union. The lecture is free and open to the public. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.